October session, 2022. During this uh, session and then the accompanying ongo, the accompanying practice period, we're using the teachings of Dharma Master Bodhi Dharma as our foundation. The legend of Bodhi Dharma describes him as coming from India to China during the Liang Dynasty, probably fifth uh, century or fifth century CE. And of course, in the fifth or sixth century, um, there were no written records of his life. Nobody was standing around making note of the conversations that he had. And if there were, over the course of the last 1,500 years, it would have been adjusted quite a bit. But the legend and the teachings of Bodhidharma are an integral part of the Zen tradition, integral part of our tradition. And he's regarded as the founder of the Zen sect. Now, Buddhism had been in China for hundreds of years, since around the turn of the millennium. And the story goes, the kind of the, the, the Zen version of the story, is that during the course of those four or five hundred years when Buddhism was getting established in China, China had be, uh, Buddhism had become ritualized, it had become a scholarly activity, it had become an activity of translations, an activity of memorization. And it wasn't a dynamic living tradition. So then, according to legend, Bodhidharma then shows up and he reveals teaches a teaching, a, a version of Buddhism which is fresh. So in about 1000 CE, in a book called The Transmission of the Lamp, which is a kind of a list of koans and stories from the time of Buddha, the Buddha down to, throughout which word ends, it's probably 20 volumes long. Uh, they talk about Bodhidharma right at the very beginning and they say his essential teaching is not standing on the written word, directly pointing to the sources of the heart, not stepping up any ladders, but a direct ascent to the Buddha land. Or in simpler words, outside, a transmission outside of words and letters and pointing directly to the heart. So our practice, our teaching, is about the direct apperception of our heart, of the heart, of the core, of the, the center. Now, if we look carefully at the nature of our mind, if we turn our attention right to the, the place where thought arises, and without thought we don't discriminate a body, so there's thought that are discriminating a body, if we look right directly at that source, then everything that comes from it <laughs> is a gift. It's just given freely. So the heart they're talking about, the, the fundamental nature of reality is of generosity. And so our practice, in essence, is to recognize the fundamental nature of reality is generosity. How can we do that? Well, obviously, part of the way that we're doing that is by coming to Sashen, by starting practice, by looking directly into the source in different ways. Now, this teaching, of course, by Bodhidharma was not new. I mean, the Heart Sutra, the Prajnaparamita Sutras, the Vimalakirti Sutras all emphasize this point, that there is 
wisdom. There is a a truth, a richness, uh, a, a kind and compassionate, beneficent heart below all of the machinations of the mind, below all the structures of the cognitive, of our cognitive capacity. That may be so, but in each era, it is important that the the, the upaya, the skillful means, the path of that be explicated, be offered in ways that are appropriate to that particular culture. And in China, it may have taken a couple of hundred years, maybe longer, for those teachings to coming from India to take on a, a true Siamese a flavor. And part of that flavor is Zen, Buddhism. Part of the flavor that speaks directly to the heart in a way that is, is, was recognizable by the ancient Chinese. And of course, we're in the same process here. We take these ancient teachings from India, the ancient teachings from Tibet, ancient teachings from China, Vietnam, Korea, and somehow we have to, all of us have to learn what is the essence that these teachings are talking about and how do we give it life? And then how can we attempt to convey that in a way that is inspiring and encouraging for people to walk the path of liberation. Now, the essential point of Dharma, as you all know, is to recognize that everything is flowing. Everything is flowing all the time. We sometimes call that impermanence. But it just means things are changing, changing, changing. No matter what we receive, no matter what we get, no matter what we see, no matter what we understand, no matter where we stand, it's going to change. It's going to change. It's going to flow. It's going to become different. <clears throat> the future will flow and will be manifested, manifesting differently in the present. And the other aspect of essential dharma is things are whole, complete not separatable. That essentially, our life is relationship. What that means, whole and complete, means it's a relationship. We're, we're constantly being touched and interfused with and interpenetrated by others. That we're a process of connection. Now, over and over, we read all kinds of statements about dharma or the way things are, arithmetic, mathematics, social realities. And it is up to each of us to investigate the ones that are important to us, to verify, to know with our own heart to taste directly so that we are coming from a, an experiential understanding and not from a, just a cognitive understanding, not just from an idea about something. So when we say things are everything is flowing, it is not a statement of reality unless we verify it. So, how do we verify something like that? Well, we look. Is there anything that does not change? And we look, 
and we look and we look until we look at all those things, all those pieces, all those parts that we somehow feel are nuggets. And we look and see what is true. We say everything is in relationship, then we have to look and see, is that true? In relationship to what? Or if we hear the, the, the Dharma teachings, everything is process. That we're nothing but interactions. Well, we investigate that. How do we investigate that? Well, we can investigate it cognitively. Of course, we can understand, and there are certain Buddhist traditions that really emphasize you, you have to have a good cognitive understanding, a good rational understanding of the Dharma, and it's extremely rational and can be seen from several vantage points. And then if you have a, a solid foundation at that level, then you then have enough trust that you can begin actually looking into the mystery. The Zen tradition tends to emphasize look into the mystery first and then figure out how to talk about it. The text that we're going to be using during this retreat and during this ongo is an ancient one. But it was largely uh, forgotten, as <clears throat> everything is sooner or later, until uh, it was brought to light by D.T. Suzuki. D.T. Suzuki was the great Japanese translator and promoter of Zen Buddhism in the 20th century. And he heard about or looked into the texts that came from the Dongwon Caves. The Dongwon Caves were a series of caves that at the end of the Silk Road and in the early, late 19th century, early 20th century, maybe the 1920s, um, an archaeologist named Stein encountered someone in a market in western China selling these old texts. And he got curious, and he bought some of them, and then he, he paid the guy to show him where they came from. And they led him to a series of caves, which now the Dongwon Caves. And in one of the chambers of the caves, there were thousands, maybe tens of thousands of manuscripts that had been sealed up around the year 1000 CE. So in that, there were many, many Tibetan texts and Chinese texts and you know, Cotonese texts and other languages. And 90% of them were about Dharma, about Buddhism. And so it became the, the, the most authentic, earliest source, kind of verifiable source of many of the ancient texts. In that collection was a series of teachings by Master Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma, the ancient Indian sage who purportedly came from India to China, bringing, the, bringing Buddhism with him. And one of the teachings in that collection is the text that we're using called The Two Entrances and the Four Practices. And then there's a series of other, other um, not addendums, but you know, other culinary texts in that collection of Bodhidharma. Now I suspect that part of what caught Dr. Suzuki's attention was just the, the name Bodhidharma. Because the name Bodhidharma has been a um, has been recognized, has been known certainly in China and Japan, Korea, 
for millennia, for a millennium, certainly since the Song Dynasty at least. And it is recognized because it's part, that name Bodhidharma, and Bodhidharma, the, the ancestral legend, is a protagonist in some of the koan collections, protagonist in the Blue Cliff Record, the Hekigan Roku, protagonist in some of the koans in the Mumon Khan, the Gateless Gate. And because it is such a pivotal koan, certainly in the Blue Cliff Record, such a pivotal koan, anybody who had practiced Buddhism, certainly Zen Buddhism, was familiar with the kind of fundamental koans and would recognize the name Bodhidharma. So I suspect because it was so recognizable, that may have been what caught Dr. Suzuki's attention. Now, Bodhidharma, in these koan schools, is a... um, exemplifies or points out fundamental teaching. And koans, the koans are are based on oneness, they're based on total interconnection, they're based upon the, the, uh, the inseparability of our life and the life of the earth, the life of the sky, the life of the source. They're based upon seeing that perennial, constant, unflagging relationship and seeing that we are a process with everything, that there is not some separate thing here that is outside of that interactive process. So the first of the kind of koans, which everybody will hear if you work on koans, is why did Bodhidharma come from the West? Come from the West, India to China, East. And on the surface, it's a pretty boring, mundane question. What do we care why some old man went on a, decided to take a tour? But all of the koans, all of the things that are, are taught in the, the essential Dharma, Buddhism, are about our life. There's nothing separate from our life. That's what this, this whole and complete business is about. Nothing is separate from our life. So when we have a koan, like that. Why did Bodhidharma come from the West? The Bodhidharma it's talking about, the wise person it's talking about, the wisdom being it's talking about, the Bodhi, enlightened sattva being, the enlightened being it's talking about is us, our mind. The one mind that is always at the core of our life, always present. Everybody else flows through our life, except for us. So this koan, why did Bodhidharma come from the West, is really a koan about us. Why do we do anything? Why do we come here? And who is the one who's coming? And if Bodhidharma was a wise sage in India. What on earth would propel an old man to make an arduous trip? They say it took three years to come to China. If the truth is present right here, why does anybody need to explicate it? Why does anybody need to bring it anywhere? And, of course, if we think about someone, whatever fantasy we have about the year 1000 CE, 
They say it's very difficult traveling and he had to travel in a small boat and it took him three years. And you think about how arduous that journey must have been. Why do we meet and have so much challenge in our life? Why are our lives so arduous at times? Why do we come to Sishin and face all the difficulties of body and mind? So this koan, why did Bodhidharma come from the West, is not about some old guy. It's really a koan that asks, okay, what is the essence right here? And often it's used as a testing question. You'll see in the in the koan tradition if you become engaged in it, that people will often ask that question, why did Bodhidharma come from the West, as kind of a, a dipstick to see, well, what's... What level can this person respond to that? With any investigation, It's important that we investigate what is rather than what is not. How do we investigate something that is not except by looking at perhaps even the whole in the things that are? We have, how do we investigate space aside from the objects, that is indeed the way things are, in that space, or the space between objects, or the space within objects. How do we discuss, how do we investigate something that has no relationship? So with all of the koans, all of the existential questions, we have to investigate something that we can put our finger on, something we can get a hold of. So if you want to, if you're concerned about birth and death, if you're concerned about the future, we don't know. The future is not here. There's nothing to investigate about the future. Nothing. It doesn't exist. But if we look directly right now, what is it that's alive right now? What is the mind that anticipates and is anxious about the future? What is that? right here, right now, we can begin investigating it. We can look into it. So all of the koans ask us to look into the flowing now of our life and to look beyond our fixed ideas, our fixed views of what those lives are. Now, there were There's no requirement that anybody do this. There is no requirement that anybody get the slightest, have the slightest interest in the the existential questions that, that have bothered some people throughout human history. There's no, no reason at all. And most people are not. You know, you say, well, what, what is your essential nature? Where did you come from? Most people say, well, can't see anything. I'd rather watch TV. There is absolutely nothing requiring, in in one sense, requiring us to investigate who we are, the source of life is. And as I mentioned, most people just would like to just get by. Just go to work to buy the things that we have to go to work in order to buy. We spend time, you know, it's much easier to surf the internet and to watch Netflix and scare ourselves over and over again by watching the news. It's a, it's a favorite form of entertainment, it appears, from my vantage point. And people go, some people go to horror shows and some people watch the news, you know, basically the same thing. So why? Do we 
come to Sashin? Why do human beings face the challenges, the existential crises, face the turn our attention to the heart when we could do something, you know, go out for ice cream, buy a new boat. It's hunting season. We woke up this morning and there were guns going off all around, certainly where I was. One reason, one from my vantage point, see if it's true for you, is that no matter how many movies we watch, we're not satisfied. No matter how great the meals we have, great meal after great meal after great meal, they don't satisfy the restless heart. The the temporary relief of suffering that comes from many ordinary activities is just temporary relief and doesn't touch the calling of the heart. In our culture, we somehow think that more of something is going to be better. That If I just had more of it, then I would be more satisfied. If I get more sleep, if I get more money, if I have more, more of this, or better, or better, or better, a better partner, or a better place to live, or a better environment, then. But you know, we've tried this our whole life, more and more and more, and better and better and better and better. It does not satisfy the heart. What does? Now, back to Bodhidharma. The legend says that at an advanced age, he took this boat trip, this arduous voyage for three years, came to China, had an interview with the emperor of China, was kind of rejected, um, and then left and went to Shaolin Temple and faced the wall for nine years. And after nine years, he passed the Dharma on to a handicapped person. Not a very compelling story. So what would motivate, what motivates someone, even if this is a legend, what motivations might there be to fuel extraordinary people? And these koans ask us to investigate that. And if we don't actually investigate our own life in the course of the koans, I'm going to talk about some in just a moment, then they don't make any sense. They're just stories. It's only if we inhabit them, only if we realize, oh, this is not about somebody else, this is about me. Do the koans actually make a difference, make, a, make sense? In the Blue Cliff Record, the first case, so the most important of the hundred cases of the Blue Cliff Record, the very first case is a case about Bodhidharma. And it lays out the essential principles of Dharma, but also it lays out some questions for investigation and gives us a route inward. Here's the koan. Uh, It's translated different ways. Bodhidharma's uh, clear and void, vast and empty, um, boundless mind. So Bodhidharma has an interview with the emperor of China. And the emperor says, what is the highest meaning of the holy life? 
What is the highest teaching of Dharma? What is the, the most, the highest teaching of life in general? What is the essence of life? Now, in other places, it's explicated a little bit more that this emperor was very famous patron of the of Dharma, and he had, you know, built temples and ordained monks and given lots of of money and support, and the sangha had grown and thrived. And so he also is is asking Bodhidharma, "Well, I've done all these great things. What am I going to What am I going to get out of it? What's the What's the merit? What's the benefit?" So these two questions, what is the benefit of all the good things that we do? One question. Or what is the, the, the deepest meaning of the good things we do, the deepest meaning of our life itself? And in the koan, Bodhidharma says, one translation, clear and empty. No holiness. Vast space. Nothing to be called holy. So there are two, two levels. Here's the, the emperor saying, I've done all this good stuff. What do I get out of it? Bodhisattva says, nothing. Or, what's the meaning of my life? Bodhidharma says, well, no meaning. Now, as a, on the surface, that's not very inspiring. You know? Say, here, I'm working really hard, and I've done all these good things, and I'm trying to obey the precepts, and I've gone to lots and lots of retreats, and I've devoted my life in this way and that way, and what's the, so what? What, what, what benefit? It's going to happen. And, of course, part of that is, is the, the essential Dharma teaching of karma. Everything has an effect, and every effect has a cause. And so the, if we have good, good causes, then we have good effects. The more intention we have towards wholeness, then the better the outcome. Classic way of looking at Dharma. But that's not, it is the way we ordinarily think. You know, if I invest enough money, I'll get a big um, bonus after it accrues all the interest at the, at the end. So I invest, you know, a dollar a week, and then when there used to be interest for money, that interest would be compounded, and then at the end of 50 years, I would have, you know, thousand, ten thousand, whatever, dollars. So that's not the level that Bodhidharma is trying to answer on. This is about the most profound nature of mind. Now, if we look carefully at karma, the law of cause and effect, every effect, every effect has a cause. Now, it means the total effect of this life, the total interweaving of this whole universe at this moment leads to the total interweaving of the whole universe at the next moment, imperceptibly different. Cause and effect are one, the oneness of cause and effect, that as a cause comes into being, the effect also comes into being. There's not separation. There's not, it's not something that happens in time at this level we're talking about. So Bodhidharma is saying to the emperor of China, here is the deepest teaching I can give you. This is the teaching that is fundamentally liberating. See it for yourself. We do good things for the sake of doing good things. We practice for the sake of practicing. We, we give gifts for the sake of giving gifts. We, we are honest and have integrity for the sake of honesty and integrity. There's a, a genuineness in that. There's no duplicity. There's no sense of I'm... I'm doing something really good so people will like me. I'm doing something really good so you'll think, think about me in the way I want you to think about me as if that were possible. The meaning 
of our life is not found in the future. We have to verify this. We have to see the meaning of the breath is not found in the future. The meaning of the breath is found in the breath. The meaning of this body moving and tingling aliveness is found in the moving and tingling aliveness of it. And when we think, oh, there's going to be some reward. If I do it right, I'm going to get some big star. I'll get five gold stars. We are obviating, we are neglecting, we are ignoring, we are not looking at the truth. The truth is the meaning of this breath is this breath. The truth is the meaning of this heart pulse is this heart pulse. So we're sitting here in Sishen. Many people are working on breath practice, some people are working on koan practice, some people are working on shikantaza and other kinds of practices. They all are pointing to this ungraspable moment. And they're all trying to encourage us to stop slicing reality into past, present, and future. Because it's not. And they're all these practices are saying, right here, this breath, right here, this tingling, right here, this isness, right here, this question. That's where the juice is found. Every line of all of our chants, in a way, is a koan pointing exactly to that, but just pointing at it in different, different ways, different sides of the mandala. What's the highest meaning of the holy truth? Vast emptiness. Nothing can be called holy. And emptiness here is not void, obviously. It's we think of voidness as a nothingness. Well, nothingness doesn't exist. Nothing is nothing. So that isn't the, the, the experience that we have. It's not that we don't have, an, we don't have no experience. What do we have? We have constant, constant flow. Look, see if that's true. The emperor said, well, if you're saying nothing is important, you're saying everything is just flow, there's just this moment, there is no future, well, who are you? And that's a fundamental question for all. What is this life? What is this mind, this thing that we call I? Now, as everybody has encountered, everyone can say with absolute authority, that I am sitting right here, not me, not this I, but that I. Each of us can say with absolute authority, I am sitting right where I'm sitting, I'm breathing. And if people tried to talk you out of that, I hope they would have a very hard time. That would be just total, utter confusion. Because we have the experience that we have. We have the, the isness of the, the sensation of I am, which is right there. And practice is saying, yes, okay, there's that experience, let's look into it. What's it made of? Where is it found? Be curious. I am is the most fundamental sense that we have, and it is fundamental in the sense of no matter what kind of clothes we wear, or no matter what our circumstances are, or no matter what we're doing, there's that sense of, I am here, I am here, I am here. It has to be acknowledged as that is part of our life. And without negating it, what is, look into it, look into it. What is it that's right here? What is that I am? What perceives that I am? What's he, what knows that I am, that I am? Where is it found? Why do we think that it's, it's there? 
there is, we are totally and justifiably recognize our own being. But what is it? What is it we're recognizing? And that's the koan that uh, this, the emperor is asking, well, who are you? And of course, we have to answer that in a way that is satisfying for ourselves. And some people, it's just not, has no juice to it. And some people has a lot of juice to it. Koans are different. So there are some, some koans that really will resonate and some koans that are just, you know, just toss away ones. But regardless, it's this investigation, investigation, what is it that's true in this moment, in this breath? What is it that is true if my mind is no longer thinking about the past or present and future? What is it that is true if I hear these things which we label as birds? What is it that is true without a label, without a story? Clear and distinct. The other um, koan, the other koan that Bodhidharma is famous for, which is also part of why Dr. Suzuki recognized this collection, is I think even more famous than the uh, meeting with the emperor. And that's called Pacifying the Mind. And it's in the Mumon Khan, the Gateless Gate, Case 41. Now, this is one of those koans that always touched me really deeply. Here's the koan. The great master Bodhidharma was sitting in a cave facing the wall for nine years. Huiko came to the cave and tried to get his attention, and Bodhidharma ignored him. And Huiko sat or stood all night in the snow, waiting, trying to wait till he was recognized. And in the in the koan, um, which is for dramatic effect, I think. Finally, in the morning, after being ignored and standing in the snow for so long, he cut off his arm and kind of presented it to Bodhidharma. Again, a dramatic flare. Bodhidharma then recognized him and said, well, you've been standing there a long time and you've just made this, this offering. What can I do for you? What's on your mind? And Wiko says, my mind is not at rest. And then Bodhidharma says, well, show it to me. Bring it out. You see what's not at rest. I have searched endlessly. can't find it. I've set it at rest. Let's look at that coin just a little bit. Here's this guy. So the story goes, very well educated, PhD, you know, accomplished, successful, and his heart is not at rest. How many of us have our heart not at rest? How many of us have a pain in our heart, have a, an ache, have a, a restlessness? regardless of what we may have accomplished in the world. And sometimes that restlessness, that ache in the heart, is like a a slow burn, a piece of charcoal. And sometimes it's a jagged knife for some people. Deep, 
deep pain, which all of the success hadn't been able to touch. And he hears about this teacher, Bodhidharma. Again, this is, you know, apocryphal. It's a, it's a teaching story. I mean, it's not, we're not talking about uh, history, except at the, in a way, the spiritual threads. He hears about this guy, Bodhidharma, and he says, well, maybe this person has, can help me. Maybe this person will be a benefit to, to ease this deep pain. So he goes and finds Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma is meditating. And of course, as an intelligent, mature, successful uh, person, he expects that, well, everybody will uh, you know, appreciate me and be very glad that I showed up and I'll be an asset to them. And, you know, they, they, if the, if the uh, President of the United States suddenly walked in, everybody would pay attention and, and greet him. And, but in this case, Bodhidharma just ignores him. Just ignores him. Interesting teaching right there. And in that, and then Huiko just stands there waiting. The, the peace that is always, uh, he's got this burning in the heart. He's standing outside this cave and it starts snowing. And it's cold and it's bitter and it's dark. And he is he's present. How many people have gone through cold, bitter, dark times and not run from them? Sometimes we have no choice. We can't. Circumstances have compelled us in a way to Keep our feet to the fire, so to speak. But everybody in their life is going to encounter cold, bitter, dark, hard times. That's part of the human condition. And not run from it to to sit and to inquire and to be present. What a state of mind. When I was young, there used to be a Washington's birthday was a holiday, and they used to have Washington birthday sales. And I remember people staying, standing up all night long to get a 14-inch color TV. At least they have a reward. What would compel somebody? What is in, in their heart to keep going? Bodhidharma recognizes him. And the, the, the arm piece, I think, is the sign of the sacrifice, that sacrifice of ego that we have to, have to make. And why are you there? Why are you doing this? Why are you not just watching Netflix? Why are you doing this hard work And with all uh, honesty and passion, because this is not a, a cool intellectual thought. This is about passion of the heart. My mind, my heart is not at peace. And it hurts. It burns. Help me. Out of the depths of his being, this query comes. 
And that's part of what we're here for, Sashen, is to touch the depths of our being. To touch the depths of our being. I don't know what's in there for you. You may have the, the good, bad fortune of having the burning pain like we co. You may have something very different and light and bright. That's great. Hallelujah. But in this case, the deep burning. Help me. And Bodhidharma says, well, show me what is in pain. Show me the one who is in such, who is tasting this agony. Show me the one who is restless. Where is that mind? Where is the owner? Wiko says, I can't find it. I've searched. I've looked endlessly. I can't find it. The Bodhidharma says, right there, right there, your mind is at peace. That's the first part of the koan, which is a, a call to each of us. So Bodhidharma is the uh, uh, ostensible author of this particular text that we're going into, which is not the koans I just talked about, but it gives you a flavor of the, the power and the, the gravitas that this person occupies in the Zen tradition. And so we'll be looking at the two entrances and four practices as we move on to Sishin. But one fundamental question is entrance into what? What's this all about? Why did we come from wherever we came from? <laughs>